Hey guys, Andreas Steno speaking. Um, as you know, this is the most actionable macro podcast in the world. And uh, this week we have plenty of action to digest from the global central bank landscape, um, not least from Japan. And um, I guess the Japanese central bank is the only central bank in the world who's able to surprise the entire financial landscape by doing nothing. <laughs> they did absolutely nothing to their policy this week, and it was a major surprise to everyone. Um, the conversations I had with institutional clients of mine um, during the week ahead of this meeting was all centered around the discussion, will they move the needle this much or this much, uh, or will they decide to pull the rock from under this yield curve control? Um, and well, um, as of now, Kuroda uh, clearly didn't want to leave the office with a big bang. Um, I guess we can say that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm not really willing to throw in the towel on, on this story when we look three, six months ahead. But uh, what about you, Elf? So uh, one thing to be said about Japan is I don't think the market gives a shit about what Kuroda is going to be doing. The guy is out anyway in a few months, Andreas, right? Mm. It's like a, basically a lame duck. Um, what the market cares about, I think, is who's the new Bank of Japan governor? Uh, what about the wage rounds in Japan? Um, what about core inflation in Japan? Those are really the questions, right? And uh, Kuroda is clearly doesn't want to generate market dysfunctioning before it goes. Um, there was one nuance which I found interesting, uh, which is that if you look at the lending facility Bank of Japan has with Japanese banks, one of the big issues in Japan is the Bank of Japan is buying way too many bonds and sometimes it's supposed to own like 80% of a certain eyes in 10-year in Japanese bonds and that's clearly, that, that doesn't help. So, the other way for them to run monetary policy, if they want to keep uh, JGBs within trading bands, is to have somebody else buy the bonds. Now, who buys the bonds is pension funds, treasuries, bank treasuries mostly. But if a bank treasury has a swap rate which is much higher than the government bond yield, guess what? They're going to use the swap rate to have their duration, not the bond yield, unless you make them want to use the bond. And basically, that's what Europe did with the TLT arose. They lend super cheap money to European banks. Mm -hmm. And using that cheap cash, you actually have to deploy the cash in a cash instrument, not in a derivative. And therefore, you, look, you go and buy bonds, especially if the funding rate is very low. So they, he suggested maybe that funding mechanisms can be done at negative interest rates, which is interesting. It gives an incentive to banks to help the Bank of Japan buy bonds. All of these are technicalities, Andreas, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, really, it's all about core inflation wages and the next governor. Uh, Kuroda really doesn't matter much at this point. And if you ask me, I think the next governor um, is going to try and change the approach that Japan has to monetary policy. There is a new sheriff in town, basically. Yeah. So I guess the overwhelming favorite is Masayoshi Amamiya, uh, the deputy governor, um, who's considered the architect of Bank of Japan in many ways. But I guess if you can build a wall, you can also uh, tear it down again. <laughs> um, and I guess right now, uh, and I'm excited whether you agree with me, um, it's very tricky to bet against 
Bank of Japan over the course of the next month to in bond space, since you uh, will have to bet um, in JGB space uh, with a negative carry that something happens to the yield curve control and Kuroda basically promised that nothing happens as long as he's in power, right? Uh, so I guess the release valve, if you want to bet on the new governor doing something on the policy front, it'll is the Japanese yen by now. Correct. Um, and therefore, I still lean clearly in that direction that dollar yen will have to reprice clearly lower from here. Uh, even if it's been a consensus trade over the course of January so far, uh, I still like it. Um, and um, I wouldn't be completely surprised to see it below 120 before the new governor's in town. Um, but Andreas, I mean, I, my mentor used to tell me, do not fight the game masters. And the game master in this case is the Bank of Japan. And however you cut and dice it and slice it, true, the trade can get crowded short term, but look at it medium term as you are doing. These guys are basically going against the tide of other central banks that have already done the tightening. Look at emerging markets, look at the Fed. They are now just starting because core inflation lags in Japan. It lags in Europe, it lags in Japan for similar reasons. So you have a tailwind from the game masters, which are telling you that they're going that direction. And I think in general, you don't want to piss against the wind, basically. So I tend to agree with you that the Japanese yen here is probably something that you don't want to be strategically short, let's say. And uh, simply speaking, should the Japanese yen move 10%, 15% in a stronger direction from here, no one at Bank of Japan will complain about it. They will actually welcome it. Um, so to me, that looks like a very decent risk reward still, even though it's a consensus trade. Yep. And the other central bank, as we are speaking about central banks that are uh, going against the tide is definitely the European central bank. Now, this is interesting. We get the, some, uh, dissenters within the governing council, clearly Mario Draghi's strong, uh, control is not exerted anymore by Lagarde and her charisma is definitely lower than, uh, than Draghi because we got some dissenters that went to the wire saying that, well, the ECB is now going to slow down the pace of Ikes. It's going to be 25 basis point, guys. I mean, mm -hmm. everything Lagarde told us in December, forget about it. Then you get Viroua, governor of Banque de France, the same day going to Bloomberg and saying, no, 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 no. The 50 basis point is still on the table. Okay. And then today you get Lagarde, and I'm quoting her, Andreas. She gets asked in an interview, hey, Lagarde, what do you make of the fact that, you know, front-end bond deals are completely ignoring your hawkish messages? And Lagarde goes like, well, I would suggest market participants revisit their positions. Have you ever heard of a central banker telling um, short-term interest rate traders in, in, in their jurisdiction, hey, guys, don't be long there, I'm going to stop you out? I mean, this is incredible. Yeah, uh, at least it's very explicit. <laughs> uh, and it goes to show how big of an amateur she is, but um, uh, enough said about lawyers. <laughs> um, in, in, in any case, um, I guess the market is yet to understand it fully. Um, I, I, the risk reward is obviously not a, as good as betting on it as it was um, going into the year, but... Let me look at, uh, at my uh, dashboard on the macro compass. So I'm looking at the OIS curve in Euro, which prices in the central bank theoretical rate at a certain date in the future. The highest I can find on my dashboard is 3.37% mm. in six months from now. 
after that, Andreas, I see 100 basis point cuts already priced in in the successive 12 months after that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but core inflation in Europe is 5.2%, and the ECB has just calculated super core inflation, so a trimmed measure of core inflation, basically. And that super core, according to the ECB, just printed at 6.2% year-on-year and trending up, not down. So how on earth is 3.35% nominal a terminal rate that should be considered restrictive enough as a monitor? I, I don't see it, Andres. What am I missing? Uh, at least not if they follow the Jay Powell playbook from 2022. Then the aim would be to bring the front end at least close to such inflation levels, right? Uh, to to ensure that we don't have negative real rates. Um, that That's a very simple gauge of it. And You're talking about four, four and a half, five percent um, terminal rate. You're talking about, I mean, two-year shots, German government bonds are trending at two and a half percent, Andreas. Two and a half. And even if you want to put some cuts in the back end of the two-year cycle, if you want to adjust the front end, let's say the first six to 12 months to a more decent terminal rate, you have to have two-year rates trading way north of three, three and a half percent. What, what, what we don't know really by now is how much emphasis they will put on potential weak growth numbers in Q2 and stuff like that. Uh, so I guess it's fair to have some kind of probability of a pivot discounted uh, when the actual hit to the economy will uh, will surface. But as of now, um, I like to play it in two ways, uh, either via a spread trade between say September 23 versus September 24. Mm -hmm. I think that spread can invert like crazy um, yeah. based on this story. Uh, it's It's been uh, one-way traffic in that spread. Um, but otherwise, you can play it um, in more simple structures further out of the curve. You can, for example, trade 3 versus 30s as a flattener trade on this. Uh, I guess that's um, the clearest expression of this flattener trade if you look at historical correlations to core inflation. Uh, you could also just play it straightforward in the flattener between the 10-year space and the 2-year space. All of those flattener trades will work if we're right. And they also carry negative, ladies and gentlemen. So yes, yes, yes. Uh, please, uh, there is no free lunch and you're supposed to pay some premium if you want to be in the trade. But again, the European Central Bank and Lagarde she, herself, she's telling you to put the trade on. Or at least she's telling you that the front end is not priced correctly. And she kind of has quite a power on when the front end gets priced, Andreas, if you ask me. She literally sets the European uh, Central Bank deposit rate. So I would listen to what she says. Yeah, and, and let me add one final thing on Europe. Um, forecasting Eurozone inflation has now become extremely easy. Uh, you just need to watch what's going on in Spain today, and then you know what will happen in the Eurozone in three months from now, roughly, um, at least in headline terms. Um, yeah. The reason is that the Spanish uh, consumer basket is constructed with a much short, shorter time lag from the actual increase or decrease in energy prices until the end consumer uh, faces that bill. Um, in other countries in Europe, it takes a while from the spot development in energy prices until you face it in uh, the consumer basket. Uh, and therefore, watch Spain. Uh, core is still moving up. Headline is moving down. We will have like a cross yeah. between headline and core. And if you're a central bank, you, you mat uh, all that matters is the core trend, while the market will likely put emphasis on the headline trend as well, which is a perfect uh, mixture for a flattener trade, if you ask me. 
Fair point, Andreas, but I think we uh, blubbered way too long about Japan and Europe. Why don't instead we go talk about the US again? Uh, no, I'm kidding. We have a guest this week who's able to really cover everything, I guess. He's a cross-asset strategist, the way that cross-asset strategists should actually um, be able to cover all angles in global macro. So why don't we call him in? Hey guys, we're back with John Normand, the guest of the week. John is a former cross-asset strategist. Actually, he's still a cross-asset strategist, but formerly at JP Morgan. You probably remember him from that time. John, a pleasure to have you here on the, on the market trading floor. John, um, you decided to take a career break last year um, and decided to pursue a uh, second master's degree in philosophy from LSE in London. So... I guess my first question relates to um, that new master's degree from last year. Has this changed your perspective on investment research at all? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And I guess thank you for leading off with that question because I, I get it pretty often as to why I went to LSE, why I chose philosophy, what I learned, has it changed my perspective? Am I heading for a monastery or a, a yoga ashram or whatever after this? And the answer is no, I plan to go back into, into traditional finance, but with a slightly broader perspective, I'd say, as opposed to a, a different perspective. The, the broader perspective is really around normative ideas, you know, what should we be doing with our investments as opposed to what's the best way to predict how investments will perform. So the, the, the latter part, which is the, the empirical questions are the ones that we always answer if we've done economics or finance or work in banking or work for an asset manager, an asset owner. It's all around what's the mental model that we work with? Why do we think that's the right way to describe what's happened in the world or to asset prices? And how do we use that mental model to make a forecast about the future state of the world or, or, or risk and return going forward? And that is the bread and butter of finance 100%. I, I felt like I did it uh, to a pretty high standard through my academic training in economics and through the work I did in, in banking, but I always kind of felt like that wasn't the only way to think about the world, the way to think about what you do. I mean, there's obviously a, a baseline empirical question you're going to answer as to what the world's going to look like and what a market's going to do. But there's also this normative question that's becoming increasingly important, which is whether return is the only thing we care about. And when you look at everything that's happening in ESG and sustainable investing, all of the thousands of funds that have signed on to the principles for responsible investment, everyone who professes to care about more than returns, it, it really begs, I think, a, a very simple philosophical question. Is there anything wrong with standard finance? Is there anything wrong with just prioritizing financial market efficiency and, and being out for our own kind of self-interested uh, uh, financial returns? Or should we care about these other things happening in the world? That to me is a question which is asked every day in philosophy, because philosophy is all about the, our rights, our obligations, our duties to other people. So I wanted to study philosophy really from the, the kind of philosophy 101 perspective, apply some of those principles to financing and see if what it suggested was 100% aligned with the way we're doing ESG and sustainability now, or is it somehow different? And here's kind of the, you know, the short synopsis of it. If, if you want to attack the finance industry for being overly self-interested, that's a really difficult argument to make. You know, for me, as long as you agree that we should live in a free society with decentralized decision making where the means of production are owned by individuals, you got to accept that the efficiency objective is the primary objective. The whole point of allocating capital efficiently is to generate economic efficiency. The reason we want economic efficiency is, is because it maximizes societal welfare. 
in a decentralized democratic system. So if you accept that you want to be in a democracy, you want decentralized decision making, you kind of have to accept that people are going to make self-interested decisions in the financial domain. And this is a good thing from the standpoint of aggregate social welfare and utility. Where I think the problem comes into play is if you are really a diehard free market uh, believer, is there anything wrong with the way we're going about pursuing financial efficiency? And I think this is why where there's huge amounts of overlap with the ESG and sustainability community. If you really only care about financial market efficiency, you want to take into account all relevant impacts with respect to risk and with respect to uh, uh, opportunities and, and returns. The only way you can do that is by bringing in all the externalities that we've been ignoring for so long in finance, primarily around environmental issues and specifically around net zero commitments that lots of countries are marching towards. So whether you want to be someone in a red state, uh, a diehard conservative, a Tory, a right of center person, a Milton Friedman, free thinking economist, it's really hard to ignore externalities. That's an absolute wrong by your own philosophical perspective. It just so happens that bringing all those externalities in is exactly what the ESG community and the sustainability community want to happen. So I think there's a, when you look at things from a philosophical perspective, there's a huge amount of overlap between what the right thinks about this and what the sustainability crowd thinks about this, as long as they just focus on the E issues, the environmental issues, the externality issues. That's kind of the the single materiality concept, which is really familiar to ESG investors. Where I think it gets a lot more complicated, where I think people need to do much more thinking, is whether or not there's really a double materiality concept to play for. If you really care about everything that our investments do to other stakeholders, then you're really talking about whether investors are best placed to fix all these other things that are wrong in the world, or whether that's the domain of other uh, participants in our ecosystem, namely governments. And I think this is where the ESG community is really overstretching. They're really bundling in a bunch of objectives that maybe belong in the public policy domain. They don't belong in the investor domain. So as long as I think we keep the, the remit, you know, reasonably constrained, i.e. primarily around environmental issues and externalities, uh, both of these communities should be talking the same language, uh, pursuing exactly the same objectives. It's once you widen the net to all these other concerns, that you're really talking about stuff that governments are supposed to do. So that's a perspective, I think, which is crystal clear to me, but it's only clear to me because, you know, I studied it from a very different angle, which is the philosophy angle. I don't think you ever get that division of labor quite so neatly delineated if you listen only to finance people or only to sustainability people. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. 
and is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. John, I have to say I don't know of many investors that have a... uh, philosophy background um, melted with the, fi- the traditional finance background. I know of people with the history background or a law background, which are very successful investors, not of a philosophy mix. So that's going to be very interesting. And I think you're going to have a certain angle, which is quite different from many, when you come back into the traditional finance world, linking now to a place where um, outsourcing decision-making to people, namely democracy, is not particularly the best suit of that place necessarily, which is China. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. at the epicenter of global macro in 2023. So I'm going to use that Mm -hmm. link to ask the broad macro question we asked to most of our uh, guests, which is, can you please picture for us how the global macro 2023 uh, outlook is looking like from your point of view? Yeah, I think 2023 is a year where you have a a short-term lift within the context of a medium-term, i.e. when you're more kind of nudge into recession. And and the reason I frame it like this is because my starting point for thinking about the global economy is it's got some big imbalances. You know, these aren't the imbalances that we faced in the global financial crisis around debt. These are imbalances with respect to prices relative to central bank targets. And that is a reflection of imbalances in the labor market in some places primarily the U.S. If you have a view that these imbalances self-correct, I would say, um, per your earlier comment on history, there's not a whole lot of history of economic imbalances, whether they're debt-related or labor market-related, ever self-correcting. You know, they're they're kind of nudged into a corrective mode by central banks, and I think central banks are all moving in that same direction, at least in the G10, at different paces. U.S. first and fastest, Europe second, but probably catching up because they sort of managed the energy crisis reasonably well. And Japan third. And, and because I see the destination for all these countries, or let's say for the US and Europe, at being restrictive policy rates, I think the move into subtrend growth and recession is pretty inevitable. Timing, always very difficult. You know, for me, this is a, a second half event in the US because the kind of causal process is going to start with demand being restrained, finance costs moving up. That was kind of the story of 2022. The next leg of this is the profits recession, which I think is beginning with the Q4 reporting season. And after three or four quarters of negative profits, then you probably see the, the labor shedding, which then gives you the recession in the second half of the year. Normally, this would be pretty grim in terms of the outlook. The, the problem, or maybe it's the opportunity, is that there's uh, clearly lift being injected into the global economy from two sources. One is um, a more policy-driven lift. This is what's happening in China through the reopening effect. The second is kind of um, an inadvertent lift through uh, an increase in purchasing power in Europe from a decline in energy prices and some of the government delivered energy subsidies to, to households. And because of that, you're going to see kind of a, a mini bounce in the European data, I think, but I think you guys are much closer to this than I am. You're definitely going to see it in the China data. And that's giving uh, momentum to basic cyclical recovery of value trades, whether that's China outperformance on the currency or the, the equity side, European outperformance on the currency and, and the equity side, standard stuff. But I would still frame it as sort of the last hurrah. 
And I think the, the destination is still restricted policy for a long time in the U.S., the profits recession, the GDP recession following that. That's why I think if you're going to kind of position around this, and we can go into more detail, you know, you still want a portfolio which is broadly defensive. I mean, your, your risk taking is in duration and duration proxies in, in different parts of, of fixed income. Where you're taking cyclical risk, it's only in the place, places that have this kind of accidental lift like Europe or the policy driven lift like China. And, and those kind of value plays are plays for maybe the next quarter. I don't think they're plays for the, the, the balance of 2023. John, one of the things I really struggle to wrap my head around ahead of uh, the 2020 year in macro is the fact that this is one of the most well-anticipated recessions in history. Um, if you ask economists, um, it is now a consensus view that the recession will hit during the year. Uh, if you ask CEOs, um, a study was published uh, through this Davos week um, from CEOs from PVC. Um, it's also a consensus story among CEOs that we will have a global recession this year. Um, my dear co-host Alfonso has made a lot of historical uh, studies on how to position into a recession. But if we all agree that a recession is upcoming in, say, two, three quarters from now, could that break havoc with the usual recession playbook and the defensive positioning? Sure. So, again, kind of picking up on Alfonso's earlier comment that many people study things that are complementary to economics like history. Thank God people have finally started studying economic and financial history. They realize that every business cycle is finite. They don't go on for more than 10 years. They average five to six years. There are always imbalances that lead to the end of that cycle. And so you should be predicting these things to come to an end. When you see the imbalances, you may not predict it on a, on a calendar basis where you say it's only going to last X number of years because that's just statistical norm. But you should be looking at all these measures of imbalances, looking at the policy response to the imbalances and then making predictions based on that. People have finally figured out the playbook and they're using it and they're preparing. And to the extent that they uh, have fully prepared through their hedging decisions and their investment allocations, then the um, financial market pricing happens fully ahead of the event. And the event is a non-issue for direction of price and vol of price. But then, then you, you have to go kind of a layer deeper than that coarse grain view and say on a more granular basis by indicator, by asset class, is there evidence that investors are fully positioned for uh, recession type moves, wider in spreads, lower in equities, higher in vol? You can find some indicators that suggest that. You can find some relative valuations that suggest that. But I think if you went for the typical kind of scoreboard approach and looked at 10 different uh, measures of positioning across five standard asset classes, if you looked at typical measures of risk premium across all asset classes, I don't think you would say that on the majority of these indicators, recession is price. I think you might say on half of them. Uh, and I think things need to be a little fuller than that. Part of your second point about does this wreak uh, havoc with the recession uh, dynamic in terms of its its how it plays out in financial markets. Absolutely, when you get those signs of of green shoots, whether that's those coming out of China, which are policy induced, whether it's those coming out of uh, Europe, which are a little more kind of miraculous through how they manage the energy crisis. But I think you have to take the you have to differentiate between the short term play and the medium term play. You know, the short term play is definitely that recession trades get unwound in places where the risk premium was large and the recession's not happening now for the next couple of quarters, like Europe and China. But if you think that all of this is kind of a policy-induced phenomenon, you really got to keep your eye on 
you know, what's driving policy, particularly in the U.S., how much catch up is there going to be in a place like Europe for that same kind of move to restrictive? And therefore, um, when do we kind of pivot back to the, the long game on, on recession trades? I think that's kind of the second half of the year. John, I have a follow-up question on the metrics of risk premium across asset classes you referred to that are historically not aligned with a recession pricing. The first point I'm going to make, sorry to uh, interrupt your attempt to answer, is you can never price 100% a base case recession in any case, right? That would mean overspending on insurance policy, and that's yes. not how insurance policy works. So at the best case, you can argue recession can be priced in 40 to 50% before it happens. I would say that's already quite a pricing. Yeah. But please tell me, where do you see this not really priced in according to what should be ahead of a recession across asset classes? Sure, I'll tell you where it's not priced, and I'll tell you where... I'm not sure it's ever going to be priced, so I wouldn't look at that particular indicator. Um, so where it's not priced is in spread markets, with the exception of mortgage markets in the U.S. and maybe the high-grade markets in U.K. credit, which is not a big market. None of the spread markets ever got to the level that you would say are consistent with recessions. Now, there are qualifiers. We just haven't had the explosion of corporate debt relative to the size of the corporate sector, so corporate debt to GDP didn't move up uh, going into this downturn in the economy the way it has happened historically. But there have been cases where balance sheets were stable going into a recession, spreads that widen to 200 beeps or so on high grade because the earnings outlook is stressed and therefore ratings are, are, are stressed as well. And there's a default cycle to contend with. So I'd say credit is the place where it's never really happened. This is why when people say, do you want to take risk in credit as a middle ground for um, hedging the possibility that maybe we don't go into a recession. I say, sure, but you don't want to do that in high yield credit. And that is a very expensive market versus a downturn scenario. You'd only want to do that in the credit markets that have or the spread markets that fully price recession, like mortgages, UK credit. And you do it to a lesser degree in high grade credit in, in Europe and, and, uh, the US. A place that people often look to for, um, measures of risk premium in order to kind of call quits on the recession trade. Is in the vol markets to kind of think of um, vol as a, or vol spikes as a great indication of capitulation. And so they say, you know, you definitely want to buy equities if the VIX goes above 50. I'm not sure you can see those levels precisely because of something that Andreas was alluding to earlier is that this is an anticipated recession. That means there has been some reduction in positioning ahead of the actual event. It may not be a full adjustment in positioning, but because some of this has already occurred, it would be a moderate ball move into recession pricing as opposed to the explosive move in, in pricing. So if I had to say the stuff to kind of get off your dashboard in terms of telling you when it's time to buy, I, I wouldn't look at these kind of trough to big moves in ball. I don't think it's going to be signaled by that. I think it's going to be more by uh, levels of risk premium and some of these other measures of, of client positioning. John, I was at a large investment conference in London uh, a few days ago. Um, there was a crowd of large institutional investors, um, one very relevant uh, hedge fund manager as well in the panel with me. And he was making the point that, look, Alf, if this tightening in financial conditions in 2022 in the US, it was very abrupt, right? But generally speaking, history shows that the negative effects on the economy and markets tends to peak three quarters, four quarters after the, the, the peak in tightening of financial conditions, which means rounds about, round about now. Plus you get the Chinese tailwinds, plus you get the energy cost tailwind in Europe. Um, maybe, that's what, that was his point, 
there are some structural shifts in the economy that allow the market and the economy to run with 5% risk-free rates at, at a decent pace compared to what we would expect uh, before this was the case. So what do you make of this point? I think there's a little bit of circularity in terms of thinking that the economy, the financial conditions do X and then the economy does something and then this is all self-correcting and that's kind of the end of the story. I think what that ignores is the, the real causal factor in here is the, the policy intent of the central bank. The central bank sees something in the economy that it's not comfortable with. And as long as it continues to see those things that make it uncomfortable, it's going to drive policy to a level that gets the intended effect. And people don't like to use that sort of language because it sort of frames the, the central bank as this, 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 this bringer of bad outcomes, but that's kind of what they do. Like I, I might not like it, but, but I'm simply saying this is roughly their method of operation. It's kind of how they think they can deliver on a statutory mandate. So whatever's going on in financial conditions and, and however that loosening, whatever ability the economy has to ride this out, it doesn't to me, necessarily solve that underlying problem, which is that the central bank believes the labor market tightness is is really relevant to how far it's going to move. So you may see this relief short term that um, inflation has moved lower. It looks like the central bank can stop earlier with phase one of the tightening, which has been a very aggressive phase one. But um, if, if it really believes that the labor market is an issue, if it really believes the only way to tame the labor market is by crimping demand, then they will come back for a second phase of the tightening. You know, unfortunately, it means we have to debate much longer. You know, what the terminal rate is eventually. This five percent terminal rate that's priced into money markets could be the let's call it terminal rate one point zero for two thousand twenty three. <laughs> but there could be a proper. That was roughly rate. the same answer I gave him. It's like maybe you're right. I mean, maybe the equilibrium rate at which the economy can run is higher than we thought, but because the Fed wants to run the, wants the economy to run at a much lower pace than equilibrium, that means they're going to do more. So I don't see that necessarily as as uh, good news when it comes to risk assets or the economy. It's just going to trigger the Fed to do more in terms of tightening. Exactly. Look, it makes it much more difficult if you're an asset allocator because your, your time horizon gets stretched out for Correct. longer. And and your core view, which has remained defensive, um, suffers drawdown as as the kind of soft landing scenario plays out and lifts all those asset prices uh, of things you're underweight. So it's it's much more treacherous. And and I think if I had to choose the one way in which the consensus is going to be wrong this year, I think it's that this idea that you know Q1 or H1 is awful and Q2 is great and you end the year flat ends up being somewhat inverted. You know maybe Q1 and Q2 are quite good. Uh, Q, uh, H, H2 is, is the awful one, and that kind of spills over into 2024. This episode is brought to you by Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree is a global ETF and ETP sponsor and asset manager founded in 2006, and with a track record of innovation and creating better ways to invest. Today, Wisdom Tree offers a broad range of differentiated ETFs and ETPs across equities, thematics, commodities, fixed income currencies, short and leveraged, and cryptocurrencies with over 80 billion in assets under management. For more information about Wisdom Tree, please visit wisdomtree.eu. I'm, um, if not born and raised, and at least raised professionally within FX and short-term interest rates. Um, and one of the things I've noted over the course of the past couple of quarters is alongside this very anticipated 
recession, we've seen a record spread inversion between late 23 and late 24 in overnight index swaps, both in dollars and euros, uh, meaning in layman terms that um, the market expects a huge cutting cycle between the latter parts of 23 and the latter parts of 24, to an extent that we've never seen priced before in the time series history of overnight index swaps. So everyone agrees pricing-wise, that a big cutting cycle will commence towards the latter parts of this year, uh, at least to an extent that we've never seen before in history of central bank pricing. What's your thoughts around that when it comes to asset allocation into the second half of the year? Um, to me, that's a risk signal for the 60-40 portfolio again. It's, it's a very interesting question because there, there are a couple ways the consensus could be right and there's a big way the consensus could be totally wrong. So the couple ways it could be right is through just disinflation, the miraculous disinflation, the immaculate disinflation that some people are betting on, this kind of self-correcting problem in, in core CPI. If that's correct, then you should expect a big normalization of, of rates lower in 2024 because the more inflation goes down, the more the nominal policy rate needs to go down in order to keep the real interest rate unchanged. Otherwise, you get a further tightening of financial conditions if the policy rate stays at five and inflation expectations fall. That's the scenario which is great for every asset class. It's death for the dollar because the dollar's a defensive asset. It's overvalued and rate compression is going to uh, remove that overvaluation and cause it to move lower across the board. Um, the other way, of course, that could happen is if there's a recession, which you know is only going to work for Half of that 60-40 portfolio is going to work for the, for the, the 40% part on fixed income. It's not going to work for um, for the bond side, and it's only going to work against the dollar versus reserve assets, maybe not the, the commodity currencies. I think the bigger risk is kind of linking back to something that Alfonso mentioned earlier, is what if this is kind of um, a pause before another round of, of hikes, that the economy is more resilient than in previous cycles because of the lack of balance sheet uh, damage during the expansion. Therefore, there's a pause at five. The economy uh, manages to deliver roughly trend growth. There's kind of this background continuous ongoing tightening in the in the labor market. Core never comes back down again, and then the Fed is on the march or on the step towards 550 or six. And so that disinversion comes out of the curve, but more because the economy just has more underlying strength than we anticipated. So I see all kinds of ways that um, that curve inversion could be tricky, you know, both in terms of how do we get the cuts? Is it through the recession or disinflation? And could those cuts be totally wrong, you know, because we get a, another move in the Fed? It's time to go for a macro trade idea. Three to six months horizon doesn't need to unfold tomorrow. You have a few quarters ahead of you. And also you get an early exit card by telling us what could go wrong with your trade idea. I mean, we are, we are gentlemen over here. We know we can be wrong. So <laughs> go ahead, John. So if you're going to pen it to a three or six month horizon, if I want kind of an asymmetric risk reward bias, meaning it can work in a disinflation scenario, it can work in a recession scenario, I think there are a couple of things you want to do. One is I still think you want to own duration. It works in either case. Um, I'm slightly more biased towards taking that duration in higher yield markets like Latam with a uh, cycle is quite advanced on the rate side, as opposed to treasuries where uh, rates have rallied you know, well below what the policy rate is going to be in a year's time. But duration in general, I think, is still the way to go. And I like more or less duration proxies in commodities like, like gold. The other set of trades I like is in F FX, just shorting the, 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 
the DXY basket. So this is basically the, the dollar versus major currencies. It's not only a play on disinflation and uh, the Fed at least pausing short term after its next couple of hikes. It's, it's also recognition that this is the really the loan expensive uh, defensive asset, the U.S. dollar. And so there's something there about the valuations, which is suggestive of, of over positioning that market. The third piece of it is, is simply the rate catch up that I think is going to go on in, uh, through the ECB and through the, the BOJ because they have negative policy rates, which are very inconsistent with the more or less full employment position that those economies have reached. And full employment with negative policy rates is a ginormous policy mistake. Usually I mean, it takes a while sometimes for the central banks to realize that mistake and start correcting it. But they are correcting it, you know, slowly in Europe and slowly in, in Japan. And I think that process of correction over the next three or six months supports euro higher and, and yen higher. I'm still not comfortable owning equities aside from this kind of last hurrah trade in Europe and China because I, I feel like it's, it's binary. You know, it's, it's so much more dependent on whether we get the miraculous disinflation or, or, or the recession. And, and I'm comfortable buying into a last hurrah for three months. You know, I think it's a bit shakier over, over six months. Great summary, John, and a tremendous discussion um, with um, with you around cross asset strategy. It's always a pleasure to uh, to talk to someone who's just able to jump around each asset class and, and talk about what's priced and what's not priced. Uh, simply just a pleasure to have you here on the macro trading floor, and we hope to have you back again during the year when we know more about your next venture. So let's see. Um, I'm happy to do it. Thank you for the invitation, guys. Welcome, John. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Back at the Backrow trading floor, we just hosted John Norman, the former head of uh, cross-asset strategy at JP Morgan. Uh, great guy, uh, clearly knowledgeable around right about every corner of the financial market. And um, I think he expressed a, a pretty clear view with two various time horizons. First of all, he expressed the view that the Chinese reopening and the softening of energy prices could allow Q1 to be a little bit better than feared. But ultimately, the recession is only a timing question in his view. And when the question around a recession is only a matter of timing, he's of the opinion that it makes sense from a structural perspective to lean into what he calls long duration products. Um, either that could be a weaker dollar, um, that is a proxy of a long duration view. It could be um, long U.S. Treasuries um, a bit further out the curve, and it could, for example, be to buy investment-grade bonds relative to high-yield bonds. Those are three classic expressions of a long-duration trade. Um, we'll focus mostly on the dollar trade today. Um, one way of expressing that via an ETF is via the LEUR ETF, um, Wisdom Tree Long Euro versus Short Dollar. That is a very good proxy of the DEXY index, uh, so the broad dollar index. Um, the euro is, is, is basically a bit more than 50% of that index. Um, so that's one way of expressing it, Alf. Um, you obviously have tons of way, ways of expressing long duration. You could even buy a Tesla, um, maybe on the stock exchange, but uh, um, you know what I mean, Alf. What do you make of the long duration trade now, especially given how inverted the hmm. 23 versus 24 outlook is in both the dollar OS curve and also in the euro OS curve? It's massive, Andreas. Like, basically, the bond market, if you slice it through, it's telling you that it has a much higher certainty priced in that a nominal growth slowdown is coming. 
So that becomes the base case now being priced in by the bond market, probably at least a 50% uh, probability, even higher. If you look at bond vol, uh, it's been crushed across jurisdictions, UK, US, Europe, uh, implied volatility one year ahead for five-year rates has come down aggressively since the beginning of the year. So basically the market is saying, we know the direction of travel. We know that vol is going to come down because as growth slows down, Andreas, what can central bank do? They can't hike rates anymore, forget about it. The only thing they can do is one direction. So you already start cutting basically the potential volatility around because there is only one possible direction, which is for rates to remain where they are or to go lower. So bond vol has come down, uh, inflation expectation, holy crap, like front-end inflation swaps are 2% basically in the US and not that far away. Uh, the inflation swap market is pricing in US inflation at 2.5% by the end of this summer. Yeah, yeah, this summer, not next one, like literally in, in seven to eight months. That's an extremely high conviction and in rapid decline in inflation. So what do I make of the duration trade? I make of it that in October was a much better trade than it is now from a risk reward perspective for sure. And I think that if you want to play that, um, I think the front end from a risk reward perspective looks better than the very back end. Because ultimately, if you're right on this, this inflation story, and if you're right on this recession, the Fed is not going to keep rates at 5% for much longer, Andreas. And the term premium in the back end has been compressed so aggressively that a good portion of the cutting cycle, not all of it, but a good portion of the cutting cycle and what ensues is already kind of reflected into 10-year and 30-year rates. But at the very front end, you have still some resistance uh, from, from markets and the carry is pretty good. So you're, you're, I mean, from a cash perspective, you're paid over 4% still to sit in this trade. Um, overall, I think the better risk reward is, is behind us on the trade, uh, medium term, although still like owning bonds in a portfolio. I still like it as well. Um, and if we watch the price dynamics over the course of the beginning of the year, I'm starting to, con to convince myself that the inflation outlook will surprise to the downside of the swap pricing. Um, and I know that is um, a view that you can really um, end up being wrong on. <laughs> yeah. uh, and um, last year was obviously one big um, one-way traffic in the other direction um, on, on, on that view. But in any case, here's why I think so. The producer price index came out this week and it surprised everyone to the downside once again. Um, producer prices are falling. Is that a signal of weak demand? Um, I tend to say yes. Um, and we have a, obviously a fairly strong correlation between producer prices and consumer prices. So the print we received this week on producer prices um, basically hints of less than 5% year-over-year inflation in the US in max two months from now. That's a good start. Um, what we see in housing space is also a clear signal that the one component that is sort of left to really uh, prop up the inflation index in the US will also completely fall apart uh, as soon as the time lag um, allows it to. Uh, so observed rents are now falling um, and 
surveyed rents in the consumer price index now print at the 95% percentile versus actual observed rents. So it will reverse. It's yeah. just a matter of time. Uh, then comes the question whether wages are about to, if not decline, then at least fade. Uh, and my best guess is yes, this uh, decreased price pressure in energy space and food space that we are now observing comes at the best possible timing for employers. Um, we have wage negotiation rounds across the globe um, in, uh, coming up during the spring, at least in Europe, we have many of those. Uh, and compared to just five months ago or six months ago, the bargaining power of um, the employees is much worse. Uh, so I'm actually fairly optimistic that even wages will start to wane uh, from a momentum perspective. And rate of change matters to uh, the bond trade, um, and it probably matters this time as well. So yes, I, I still lean into this trade. Um, I also into, lean into uh, proxy trades uh, of duration in, in other asset classes. I also clearly like the, the, the weakening play in, um, in the US dollar. That makes me think, Andreas, that there have been two major forces since the start of the year. A global gravitational pull force on the downside. That's global growth secularly slowing down in this part of the cycle. And you see that reflected in inflation swaps. They're down. The dollar is down. Um, yields are down. Real rates, nominal rates, everything is down from that perspective. At the same time, you have these contrasting push forces against it. So China reopening being the one, but there is also the fact that energy prices in Europe have collapsed. I mean, look at natural gas. So the energy crisis in Europe has been much milder, which obviously on a rate of change basis helps European earnings, helps European consumers, etc. And then you get some assets, Andreas, that are behaving, being priced on that soft lending vibes, right? Where you have this inflation, but at the same time you have some green shoots for growth, for cyclical growth at least, coming from China, coming from milder energy prices. So you have, well, the renminbi, copper, um, Aussie dollar, Korea, all that stuff, right? Euro stocks as well. And this dichotomy is really interesting because ultimately What's going to prevail? If this cyclical growth push is really strong, Andreas, why would rates be so sure to price up that we are going to have lower vol and lower rates? Vice versa, if the cyclical growth push is really only cyclical, then at some point there is a big trade to fade in cyclical commodities, in euro stocks, in small cap in cyclicals in general. So which way do you lean? Let me add one thing on commodities before I get to the overall cyclical trade. Um, notice how big of a divergence you find within the commodity space so far this year. You've had a landslide in natural gas prices alongside a positive repricing of oil and copper. Yeah. That's not particularly normal. No. Um, let me put it like that. Uh, I run pricing models on each and every commodity class based on inventories, based on technicals, um, and based on um, the momentum of the economic cycle. And as of now, I'd say that most commodity asset classes remain a sell 
from an inventory perspective, I know that's very contrarian to say, but the inventory momentum is actually decent. Um, it particularly holds true for natural gas. Natural gas is just one big sell from an inventory perspective. Uh, inventories are booming all over the globe. Um, so there is a lot of natural gas right now, and it remains the case. But from an inventory perspective, the industrial metal space is clearly the part of the commodity space you want to belong. It also um, carries a spillover to the Chinese story, mm -hmm. since the credit impulse in China is still okay, and it's improving a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and that should be positive news for industrial metals as well. Um, so to be extremely pre precise, I like to be long copper and short natural gas if you want it as a spread trade. Um, but you should really be um, aware of this because natural gas is a big part of broad commodity indices. So if you just if you just decide I want to be long commodities into this cyclical upswing, remember that natural gas is a big component. Uh, and broad commodity indices actually haven't performed that well due to this. Um, so that was just one thing I wanted to say. Uh, the cyclical upswing is, in my view, a very short-term story um, because you have, as you said, push and pull forces. On typical correlations, we should expect this um, cyclical story from China to peak probably in April um, at the latest. And then you actually have a diverging uh, trend in, um, or a, a rather an opposite trend in um, in store from China already there. Um, so it's a very short lived story, if you ask me, even though they will reopen with an arm and a leg. Um, because ultimately credit is what matters the most in the Chinese economy, since it's not really an economy driven by consumerism. Um, That's true. Yeah. That's true. But the Chinese reopening, um, it's not going to be a straight line, but also it's very hard to price a Chinese reopening in two weeks. I mean, you are, you are reopening the second largest economy in the world with pent-up demand from stimulus from last year. Uh, this needs some time, actually. Not even in, in soft data, it's been reflected yet. I mean, if you look at this stuff like PMIs, whatever you trust PMIs from China, I mean, okay, that's a different story. But even in, in soft data it's not visible yet. And you look at, for instance, Korean exports uh, being one of the most trustable, highest beta economic data to China. And, you know, it, it still hasn't really picked up there. So there is quite some way to go, I think, before this is really fully priced in, or as I would say, page one of the newspaper. I don't think it's yet page one, but it's getting there, definitely. Let me add a final high conviction view of mine, um, a trade that I also... Uh, have on my books. If the US inflation number keeps disappointing to the downside on a trend basis, there is one trade that will make you very rich, in my view, and that is to be short the US dollar versus the Swedish krona. The Swedish krona is um, still extremely cheap and it hasn't really moved alongside uh, other high beta currencies such as the Korean won, the uh, Polish slotty and stuff like that, the Swedish krona still remains weak. Um, and therefore, watch out on the Swedish krona. I know I've been negative on Sweden throughout 2020 to, due to the lack of fixed mortgages there, but um, I actually think it's time to, to try and pick up the Swedish krona from extremely weak levels. Guys, um, as always a reminder, um, in case 
you want to have full access to my macro views, ETF portfolios, interactive tools, much more, themacrocompass.com. And Andreas? Stenoresearch.com. Um, and um, we'll make sure to add the links to both the Macro Compass and Steno Research in the description below the podcast and on YouTube. Uh, so go have a look. Um, you will not forget it. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys, for listening. I really need an espresso, but uh, your patience is appreciated. Sticking with us for an hour, almost. Thank you. <laughs>